Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook, and with me today is Asma Houdin, who is a, a religious liberty lawyer who has worked on cases at the U.S. Supreme Court and the Federal Appellate and Trial Courts. She is the founding editor-in-chief of Alf Muslim com and a producer and advisor of the Emmy and Peabody-nominated docu-series, The Secret Life of Muslims. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Teen Vogue, Newsweek, Refinery29, Religion News Service. Asma lives in Washington, D.C., and you can visit her at com. I want to add a little bit to that because I was so impressed with the, um, the resume. After graduating from the University of Chicago Law School, Udin served as counsel for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and director of strategy for the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom in Washington, D.C. She's an expert advisor on religious liberty to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and that's just a part of an impressive resume. The book is When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. Uh, Asma, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This uh, speaks to an issue that is as old as autocratic uh, countries themselves. Um, there, there's such a history of fear between Christendom and Islam from the days of the Crusades and the Ottoman Empire, uh, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella driving the Moors out of, of southern Spain. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. But 9-11 has really manifested some, some terrible conditions for the Islamic population in America. It has. And the interesting thing is that what we're seeing today is far worse than what we saw in the the immediate aftermath of 9-11. In Mm -hmm. the aftermath of 9-11, we had President George W. Bush, who kept emphasizing that there was a distinction between those who had um, quite tragically created, um, instigated this violence in the name of Islam versus the average everyday Muslim. There are 1.8 billion Muslims across the world with incredible diversity and he, he very rightly created that distinction up front, um, and, and, and there wasn't the same sort of level of hate and hate crimes and hateful rhetoric um, as we see today, and definitely the rise of legal arguments of aimed at depriving Muslims of religious liberty is a more recent phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that distinction is important, and you, you address it in the book in several places, but the, in the introduction you say fearing all Muslims because some Muslims are doing abhorrent things betrays an extreme ignorance of religion in general and Islam in particular. Right. I mean, there's so much there's – there's a tendency to conflate the two. And as I note in that same section where, you're, where you just referenced, um, there a lot of it is really – well, there's a couple of different things happening. One is that because there are only one point, Muslims only come to 1.1 percent of the, the U.S. population. Most Americans don't actually know a Muslim, and so when you're trying to think of Muslims in Islam, you tend to take your information from what's kind of fed to you, either by by media or, as I also point out in the book, a very sort of strategic uh, campaign, uh, highly you know well funded by. Um, in the millions of dollars, um, and there's, it's what the Center for American Progress called Fear, Inc. It's a number of anti-Muslim agitators who are highly paid to basically spend full time, all day, every day, um, perpetuating uh, fear and anxieties about, about Muslims. 
And so, and a lot of Americans don't realize that. They think that a lot of their their concerns might be based on perhaps the the constant news coverage or the fact that we live in an age of violence where there's just sort of ongoing um, acts of extremism and terrorism. Not all of them perpetrated by people claiming to be Muslim, um, but in general, I think we're all kind of um, sort of uh, you know, in a, in a, you know experiencing a lot of uncertainty. And so a lot of Americans think that this is where their fear is coming from, but not realizing that it's also a very strategic uh, sort of dissemination of these ideas uh, by people who are paid to do this. Mm-hmm. And we can get into some of the detail about the, the fear mongering and the misinformation, but uh, it's important to, to, to make this distinction very clear. I mean, Boko Haram and ISIS and Taliban is not representative of Islam as a whole. Yes, absolutely not. And mm-hmm. definitely not representative of, I think another thing that happens when it, when it comes to American, Americans' perceptions of Muslims is that they tend to conflate or sort of lump together Muslims in America with Muslims anywhere and everywhere across the world, right? So they, they hear about a particular government or government action in uh, a Muslim-majority state, and they sort of, A, assume that just because it's a Muslim-majority state that that government is somehow acting on the basis of Islam as opposed to, as all governments do in, in in the name of their own interest, and definitely that is the case with the authoritarian governments that uh, are unfortunately in power in a number of Muslim states. And so there's mm-hmm. a sort of mapping onto what's going on abroad, and more specifically, what are these governments doing, or what are these rogue actors doing, and we're going to sort of assume that they have a fundamental shared connection to American Muslims. And a very, from the very beginning of my book, I'm like, we have to create a distinction. We have to understand that what we're talking about when we talk about constitutional rights is our fellow are our fellow American citizens. You, you can't keep thinking about American Muslims in, through this international lens. Um, it's unfair mm-hmm. to to um, the American Muslims themselves to have to carry the burden for actions that they have absolutely no control over. Um, but it's also unfair to America because when we begin to sort of dilute our freedoms and our and our ideas of of the sort of coherence and equality with which we extend these freedoms. Um, what we end up doing is really sort of weakening the law in a way that will impact people of every religious faith and none. And I think that's an important point that you make throughout the book about how if if one group is denied religious freedom, that affects us all. Let's distinguish religious freedom from religious liberty. Okay. Well, I mean, so in the book I use the terms interchangeably. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I do – um, talk about how, like, over time, there's been these different sort of like connotations, ver- you know, between the two different phrases. Um, you know, one ha- having to do with sort of like being able to have, be free of government restraints, um, and so on. But I mean, ultimately, I, in term for the purposes of the book, I do use those those phrases interchangeably. Uh huh. So um, the escalation of the misinformation, the hate, the fear of Sharia law uh, are coming to fruition in so many different ways. Let's start with Murfreesboro, what happened there when they were trying to build a mosque and uh, the, the, the rhetoric around Sharia law. Right. And so the, the Murfreesboro, Tennessee case is the case that really kind of inspired um, so much of what's in this book in the sense that that was a case that I was involved with um, at the federal court level, um, but in the sort of local chancery court, um, there was an argument made basically in opposition against these plans for the the Muslim community there to build a mosque that while the county was wrong in approving these construction plans and using the types of laws that every other house of worship gets to use uh, to sort of help facilitate that approval, 
because the argument was that Islam is not a religion. It is instead a dangerous political ideology. As you noted, Sharia came up in this, or I should say a sort of distorted conception of Sharia. Sharia is like this this bogeyman. Um, and that because um, there are these, uh, the argument went, because it's a dangerous political ideology, Muslims, and specifically the Muslims of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, should not have access to religious freedom. And um, and it was, again, a Chancery Court case. The, the judge in the case allowed this, these sorts of arguments to go on for many days, um, as opposed to, you know, understanding that they were, I mean, it was really, some of the questions were extremely vulgar and um, out of line, and a type of thing that you don't typically see permitted in courtrooms. Um, but it kind of gives you an idea of where the judge was sort of emotionally and psychologically on this for him to allow this to go forward. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. Department of Justice in 2010 actually had to get involved in a Chancery Court case, probably the first time it ever had to, um, and filed a brief making the argument that I would have hoped no, it would never would have had, had to. Um, and that argument was that the United States considers Islam to be a religion. Um, and again, that was 2010. So things have changed since then in terms of the type of rhetoric and the frequency with which we see this argument being made now in the public space. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it hasn't helped that this administration has been really strong in their opposition to um, Islam, the, the travel ban. Uh, I think it was Donald Trump who said, I think Islam hates us, was one of the quotes in the book. Right. And so this idea of Islam not being a religion, Islam being somehow different from every other religion, um, is is definitely an idea that we we hear in different forms, right? It might not come in very sort of explicit form of Islam is not a religion, but we it, it's essentially communicated to us over and over again. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is just the rhetoric that we saw um, during the 2016 election, presidential elections, and that a number of GOP candidates made it uh, sort of define the, the, the election as the quote unquote religious liberty election. This was that that is the most important item that the candidate would essentially be selected on the basis of who's going to protect religious liberty the, the, be- the best. And yet, simultaneous to this conversation, there were also proposals being put out by a number of different candidates at the time. Uh, essentially saying that Muslims had to be surveilled, that there needed to be Muslim registry, that Muslims had to be banned, that mosques had to be shut down. And so there was a very clear distinction there being like, well, we're all for religious liberty. We're also saying these things that are very sort of obviously against religious liberty. And so the inference there, of course, is that Muslims somehow don't qualify for religious liberty. And, And the current state of affairs has led to really a difficult life for all American Muslims. You talk about the, the fear of bullying and, and how much bullying goes on in schools. Uh, talk about that for just a moment. Yeah, I mean, there is currently uh, student, Muslim students in K through 12 are experiencing, um, there's a 42 per, 42% of them have reported incidences of, of bullying, the parents of these students. Um, and I mean, this isn't, there is in general a lot of faith based bullying against members of diverse faiths. A lot of Jewish and Sikh Americans, um, deal with this as well. Some, some also Catholic, um, Americans have dealt with it. Um, but the, but the, just sort of in terms of, um, this sort of rising phenomenon of like also the, the anti Muslim hate crimes are also the fastest growing, uh, in the U.S. and are at much higher numbers than even in the, the immediate post 9 11 period. Um, and, and there's been a resurgence of this, unfortunately, also because of the rhetoric coming from um, sort of the greatest 
you know, sort of like our highest levels of authority in, in the country that are helping to justify and legitimize for violent actors, um, that it's okay to think of, hu- of, of Muslims as somehow less human and less deserving of, of protection and safety. Mm-hmm. And there's also been a sharp rise in, in anti-Muslim crimes. Right. And so uh, the fastest growing in, in, in the country. Um, and so there's the FBI data shows that there, in 2016, there was a 67% surge in, in hate crimes. And in 2017, that number has stayed, uh, in, uh, it has stayed high um, and it rose by, another, by 17% compared to the previous year. Mm-hmm. So just from the level of uh, being a mother, uh, uh, being concerned about your kids uh, not expressing anything ontological or, or religious-based because uh, it might lead to harm on their part. It, it, it's difficult to control that given that you want them to learn from your faith. Absolutely. I mean, so some of the stories that I share in the book, for instance, one of my um, my now seven-year-old in the book, when I wrote it, he was six. Um, and it's like he's just sort of fascination with these different prophetic stories. And what many readers might find interesting and new when they when they read this part of the book is that so many of those stories are shared with, with the Bible. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of um, the prophets and the various miracles um, as between the Quran and both the Old and New Testaments. And so these stories, of, for instance, of, of, of Jesus, of, after whom my, my, my own son is named, his name is Isa, um, which is the Arabic equivalent of Jesus, um, mm-hmm. the stories of Joseph and Jonah living in the belly of the whale and Moses. Um, these are just sort of like the types of stories that kind of help him understand bigger concepts, but also through an element of, of magic almost. That's, from, that's something that makes um, religion um, magical in the ways that I think a lot of kids can relate to. And so he just has like this, this sort of love of these stories and a deep appreciation of the different sacrifices that they, they reflect. And so, of course, naturally, he kind of just like all kids do when you get excited about something, you get excited about different stories and characters you want to share with your friends. And that's something that when he, tell, when he, when he told me that he talks about this in school, of course, when I'm, I'm thinking about the statistic of 42% of parents of Muslim students have reported bullying. And so it's just, that is one of many different types of forms of religious expression that I have essentially just been like so scared to, to sort of hear my, my kids talking about because I'm afraid of what that might mean in terms of bullying and, and violent uh, responses. And let's, let's talk about, you know, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, just, it's so important to understand that in the U.S., like in a place where we have the broadest religious freedom protections in the world, it's really a space where we're, we're supposed to be feel comfortable um, expressing our religion in public and sort of engaging in this sort of uh, speech and expression um, and not feel unsafe because of it. So he really, it again, sort of ties into what this means in terms of American freedom and in the American public space. Mm-hmm. And, and extending that a little bit uh, with regard to such things as the, and, and I'm, I'm, I may butcher this pronunciation, the hijab, the, the yes. headscarf. Uh, mm-hmm. People are, are uh, abused, mistreated, and and all kinds of uh, horrible things are said to them because they're wearing this. Uh, they're taken off airplanes and so on. Yeah, and so I think the the yes, yeah, so some of the stuff you're talking about is a phenomenon that's really kind of um, come to the fore since uh, 2016 elections and continues to happen. The so-called hijab grab, where a, a woman or girl wearing a headscarf 
is sort of grabbed by her her scarf in a way that is meant to sort of suffocate her, um, you know, and or otherwise cause her harm. And so now, you know, I talk about uh, a Muslim martial uh, martial art expert who kind of uh, developed some methodologies to help sort of like battle against hijab grabs, and she trains Muslim women um, in sort of using this method to defend themselves. Um, and, you know, I think the hijab for a lot, for a number of Americans sort of represents, again, all kinds of negative things. Um, I mean, we, we, a lot of people think of it in terms of the international uh, implications, like what might be happening in certain countries with certain women wearing headscarves. Um, and not realizing, again, that in the context of American Islam, and it has to be thought of in that way. And, and not to mention that even internationally, it's not the the horribly oppressive tool that a lot of Americans think it is, it, it's not. I mean, the vast majority of Muslim women wear it um, out of free will. But definitely in the American Muslim context, it is a source of so much pride and source of self-expression um, and a source of modesty. I mean, it's just we live in a, a society that's sort of saturated with um, sexuality and um, and the sort of uh, modification of the, of, the, of the female body. And so it, it is a way of sort of like pushing back against that. And resisting that, mm-hmm. and understanding all these different, very rebellious and resistant, resistant train strains of of thought that go into this—that's really sort of source of empowerment for for many women. Um, to then think of that again as a form of self-expression, a form of religious expression, and then see, mean, it means that it's uh, essentially being used to to, to instigate sort of physical assault against them. Um, I mean, that's really distressing. And, and, and again, we're talking about less than two percent of the population are American Muslims, and uh, there's this rhetoric that oh, they're going to take over and Islam, uh, Islam make Islam the the predominant religion and Sharia the predominant law. And you make you make analogies to other strains on religious freedom. For example, when JFK was running for office, they were afraid he'd be loyal to the Vatican instead of to the United States. So this religious issue uh, is common for other people besides Muslims. Absolutely. So I trace the, the sort of familiarity, the deep familiarity of that, this idea of dual loyalty that and this idea, which is, which is rooted in this the concept of like, well, they're, they're not going to have allegiance to US, the U.S. Constitution, to American values because their allegiance lies somewhere else. That was a precise claim made against, um, as you noted, um, Catholic Americans in some form. It, I, we see it in more subtle forms today. Um, with respect to Catholics, and I talk about that towards the end of the book, um, you know, we, we've seen it made against Jewish Americans and, and uh, Mormon Americans. I mean, Mormonism being an American-born religion, it's sort of even more startling that there was uh, a depiction of them as, as un-American. Um, and we, we see it again here. And one of the points that I make is that a number of these people making these claims um, would would be the same people who would who would think that there should be a greater public role for Christianity. And so and they're and they're sort of always sort of concerned about others, especially people from the left, kind of arguing that well if we allow XYZ exemption or XYZ uh, policy that this is essentially allowing for Christian nationalism or the takeover sort of uh, of, of Christianity of in this country. Um, and I'm just like, well if you have problem with those arguments, I mean and if you think that they're unfounded and uh, and wrong, then just think about the flip side, because you're making the exact same claim about Muslims, even though, again, Muslims are only, um, A, that's not their intention, um, B, it's just like not a pragmatic reality, 
uh, most of them constituting 1.1% of the U.S. population and are, are by no means uh, in a place of political dominance. We've only now just realized, you know, elected our first couple of um, Muslim female Congress people. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just, it's also kind of like just take a moment to think about the attacks that you dispute and see how you're engaging in those same types of attacks. Mm-hmm. So, so what is religious freedom anyway? You uh, talk a lot about Jefferson being a hero of yours because of where he stood on religious freedom. Well, the interesting thing about Thomas Jefferson is that he did have um, in- incredibly broad um, uh, conceptions of religious freedom as one that was protective of people of every religion. And when he was formulating these thoughts, you know, he owned a copy of the Quran. Um, we know this uh, congressman, former congressman Keith Ellison, was sworn in with his hand on that on that Quran. Um, and he had this idea of sort of like one day, you know, he imagined an American society in which there would be American Muslims and which they in in which they would have equal access to religious freedom under the U.S. Constitution. Of course, what was really interesting is that what he didn't realize is that living among uh, among his own society at that time um, were Muslim slaves. I mean, an, a significant percentage of the of the slaves that were brought over uh, to the U.S. were Muslim. But of course, the very fact of slavery sort of erased their existence from um, from sort of the mind for, of all of our founders. Um, and so, religious freedom, like that, is a concept that uh, many Americans sort of confuse. They think it's probably something like religious tolerance or religious pluralism. And that, in part, is what has led to so much confusion in the national discourse uh, about religious freedom. But religious freedom is actually a legal concept. It, it is a definition primarily of um, the individual or religious organization, or individual religious believer or religious organization with the government, and basically defines the limits of that uh, of the government's uh, incursion into religious practice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually, you have defended religious freedom in, in cases that, that might surprise one. For example, the the bakery in, in Colorado that didn't want to make a gay wedding cake. Yeah, I mean, so I, I wasn't one of the attorneys on that case, but I have, I do stand in support of the, the court ruling in that case. Um, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the, this deep confusion about what religious freedom is and and understanding that as a legal concept it has been defined and determined by the sort of the, the nitty-gritty of our legal jurisprudence and so that case you know was essentially uh depicted as a christian baker refusing to serve a gay couple it was it was uh described as a inherently an act of bigotry or discrimination but in fact, the, the, the facts of the case are much more nuanced and much more specific. And what the court was asked to, to rule on were, was also much more specific than the question of can people discriminate? Um, and so in that case, for example, uh, the baker was totally fine serving um, gay couples and gay individuals with any other product um, that, he, that, he, that he was selling, including uh, sort of pre-made wedding cake. Um, his only objection was to the, to the very specific act of creating a custom wedding cake, um, which he said that that sort of customization was an act of free speech and free expression, but it was also an incursion on his religious liberty, he argued, because it involved him in sort of celebrating um, a marriage that was against his religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Now, our ideal is that judges 
in court cases are objective. But of course, they have their own belief system, and sometimes that impacts on what they decide. And you mentioned that in several instances, too. Right. I mean, I think that there's any, um, you know, professional that we would think that a major job requirement would be impartiality, it would be a judge. And I think a lot of judges, I mean, judges do sort of pride themselves on this. And this is, and, um, but unfortunately, what we're seeing um, in the context of religious liberty claims, there have been a number of empirical studies that have shown, at least in the lower federal courts, so this is not the U.S. Supreme Court, but beneath that, um, that there, that Muslims bringing religious liberty claims, as compared to people of any other religion in America bringing religious liberty claims, are the least likely um, to prevail at roughly half the, the, the same likelihood as people of other religions. And when it comes to Muslim prisoners um, bringing claims, um, that, that number goes even lower. So they're only a third of the, uh, as likely to prevail as, as others. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the, the researchers who sort of did this analysis, um, they went through a number of different explanations as to why this could be. And after going through them and sort of considering and, and, and uh, disputing them, um, the conclusion that they reached was that the broader American social bias against uh, American Muslims, again, driven in large part initially by 9-11, um, essentially... Um, uh, affects judges, judges who are ultimately human and not and not robots. Um, and while judges might not understand that they are sort of um, they're reflecting these biases, um, ultimately that is the conclusion that these researchers have have reached. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And and the the injustice of one religion not being protected shows up in a lot of different ways too, not just in the courts. You talk about the NYPD uh, profiling. Uh, uh, Islam and uh, input and bringing spies into to hear what kind of rhetoric was going on in Islamic groups. Yeah, I mean, probably the if there was ever, I mean, I think that if you think of the idea of Islam not being a religion, it's so it, it's just so all encompassing. You know, this idea that all religious liberty is denied to Muslims, and. Interestingly, a lot of the types of studies and counterterrorism studies that are forming the type of policies that we saw in NYP, in, implemented by the NYPD essentially do this thing where they might not say all of Islam is not a religion, but they essentially say that the version of it where it's actually practiced devoutly and where people are actually religious, that that is the part that's problematic. And that's another example of just like religious practice in a very, very broad uh, way uh, being impacted um, in America, despite the fact that American, you know, values of religious freedom are the broadest in the world. And so, for example, mm-hmm. with the NYPD surveillance case, I mean, I talk about how it's just acts of religiosity, just like the, a woman's decision to wear a headscarf or a man's desire uh, to grow a beard um, in, sort of con- in sort of conforming with the traditions of the prophet, um, praying five times a day or reading Quran, like becoming more religious, like these things are just sort of very basic fundamental aspects of religious practice were essentially criminalized um, and put these people on the radar of the NYPD um, who, you know, basically spied on them um, simply because they were engaging in acts of religious practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's much broader than just uh, Islam. You mentioned the Sikhs and how they suffer too. Uh, actually conflated with the uh, Islamic terrorists sometimes as well. Uh, so it, it's important for all faiths, 
to uh, to have this religious freedom protection. And right now, it's a, there's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. I mean, the, what's interesting when you when you mentioned the Sikh American example is the racialization of Islam and Muslims, right? So when people think of Muslims, they think of people with brown skin. And so the Sikh Americans, many Sikh Americans are South Asian. And so they are having to, uh, they're the victims of anti-Muslim hate crimes without even being Muslim. And uh-huh. and the racialization is, is interesting because it does then inflict a hate on people quite distinct from, from, from Muslims just because they're presumed Muslims. And it's also, of course, completely overlooks the fact but there are, again, almost 2 billion Muslims across the world. They cover the entire span of races. Um, maybe many people watching what's going on with the, the Uyghurs in China um, were surprised to see this sort of different looking Muslim um, and might be surprised by the fact that there are, you know, Caucasian Syrians and, and Bosniaks or, or and a number of different other types of Caucasian Muslims. Um, it's the fastest growing religion in Latin America. Um, and so, and of course, we have a 40% of the American Muslim community is African American. Um, and so people forget, people forget about Muhammad Ali, they forget about Malcolm X, they forget about these major sort of uh, African American Muslim icons, um, and just sort of uniformly think of Muslims as, as brown skinned. Uh-huh. So we have about a minute left. This is a well researched and thought provoking book. Uh, what's the long term outlook for religious liberty from, your, from where you look? Well, you know, I, I I have a um, sort of deep faith and trust in um, the American people and American jurisprudence to, to protect our founding ideals and to protect the full breadth of religious freedom um, as it is enshrined in U.S. Constitution and in our fit- various uh, statutes. And so I just I this this is really kind of a, a book that to, intended to call attention that look these are the incursions happening into the into legal space onto our fundamental rights. It's not too late. It's really about course correction. And I believe and sincerely that uh, with more discussion on these topics that we can indeed do that. I want to I say to you, thank you so much for the work you continue to contribute. We've been talking with Asma Udin. The book is When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. It's a must read. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind you, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can catch us on YouTube at Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening, and make it a great day.